And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Full 60 featuring Craig Custance and presented by The Athletic. Each week, we'll dive into the biggest stories in hockey while bringing in unique voices to entertain and explain all aspects of the game. Hey, this is Craig, and welcome to this week's episode of The Full 60. And I'm already smiling because we started telling stories before recording, and then we're like, hey, let's just hit the record button and do this, and we can share the stories with you guys. I am thrilled to have James Duffy, of course, of TSN. Also, the author, his latest book is called Beauties, Hockey's Greatest Untold Stories. And first of all, James, welcome. Thanks for doing this. Well, thanks for having me, bud. (laughs) I want to say first and foremost, before we get into a couple of things we were talking about, um, what I loved about this book, and maybe it's just because of my time covering the league, is we're starting to enter this time where where the stories of the current athletes are being told. Like It seemed like before it was like, hey, here's all these great books about people from like the 70s or whatever, and that's, mm-hmm. that's fine, but it's way more fun to me as a hockey fan and somebody in the you know covering the game right now. To, here's a great story you've never heard from you know Connor McDavid or Austin Matthews. I love that. Like that that really made this fun. Well, thank you. And I, it's become harder and harder to do. I think that's part of it. Is mm-hmm. and you're right. You know, most hockey books about stuff from the '80s, '90s, '60s beyond. And there are a few stories like that. Obviously, I'm, I'm going to write this book. I wanted stories about Wayne Gretzky and Brett Hull and some of those guys. But it's harder and harder. I, I think to get guys to tell stories like that. And, uh, you know, in general, the retired player tells a better story anyway, because he feels freed from the bounds of uh, everything. But I was really genuinely surprised by guys like Crosby and McDavid and so on, that once you get them away from those intermission interviews and get pucks deep and all that crap, (laughs) uh, they, they have a lot of great stories to tell. Yeah. And I don't know, I don't know, Craig, it's something about hockey, I think, that just lends itself to to really good stories. And uh, thanks for saying that, because you're right, you know, I think it's, you need to hear uh, more from a guy like Austin Matthews than just a couple of picks. Uh, for sure, and it's, that's right. And, and you know, it's, as somebody who, like, cares about the sport, cares about the promotion of the sport, it is, too often we get these guys, like you said, buttoned up and trying not to say the right the wrong thing. And to see their their personalities, I, like especially Connor, like I think, I think Connor sometimes gets criticized, and I think fairly because he he does tend to be uh, play things close to the vest. I've you know I've talked to him, I've been interviewing him since you know he was fifteen, sixteen, like you have, and and right. I've I've seen the the side of him that you got in this book where he's laughing and he's telling good stories, and there's a comfort level there that I, I mean it's I think it's great for hockey fans to see that. I truly think that everybody. No matter how quiet or um, reserved or boring you think a guy is, that, yeah. that they all have stories within them. Like they've all, you know, if you've played hockey for your entire life and, you know, been through the juniors or college or the NHL for a couple of years, even if, they're, even if the stories aren't about you, you have stories. 
you have stories right. from the room or the road or whatever. So it's just a matter of getting getting it out of them. Yeah. Um, I remember the first time I went and talked to Connor McDavid. He was playing for Erie. And they had, I'm sure people remember from Twitter, they had to like wear this crazy suit if they were the player of the game. And, you know, poor Connor comes out as a as a kid wearing, it was like something out of a comic book. And I, I like, and, and I loved, and I remember talking and, and then seeing afterwards, he, so he does that and he's just completely like, you know, humble about it, whatever. And then he's carrying the hockey bags of all his teammates out to the bus. I was just kind of hanging out in the hallway talking to the coaches or whatever. There was no other media there. And, and I see him just grabbing bags and they're like, I'm like, this, I'm like, you knew at that point, like there was 10 GMs in the stands talking about how this is the next superstar. There was no secret about it. And he was doing that. And I just love, and, and I talked to the coach. You're like, yeah, that's, that's, he's a first year player on this team. And this is first year players got to carry the bags. And I'm like, yeah. that's great. And one of, one of my favorite, you know, Connor tells us a couple of great stories in the book, but uh, Teddy Purcell, who's uh, one of my favorites, tells a, a story about Connor showing up his first year in Edmonton when Purcell was there with, uh, with his Erie Otters bag for the road, you know, the bag that you keep your suits in. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh, Teddy had been through this himself in Tampa where he didn't know anything, a boy from Newfoundland. And, got lectured by Vinny LeCavalier and these guys saying, no, you have to get, you know, a nice, whatever it be, Gucci bag and completely lecturing the, the face of hockey and Connor McDavid saying, you're going to go out and you're going to spend a couple of grand to get yourself a nice bag. <laughs> and, and then, and then going to buy him a watch saying, once he got him a bag, he said, I have to buy you a watch. And you know, these players buy four or $5,000 watches. And so right. he sets them up for a watch and then, uh, says, okay, you need, you know, I need whatever it is, four or five grand or six grand or whatever the watch is. And Connor's like, I don't have a, you know, I don't have a checking account or a credit card. <laughs> <laughs> he said, buddy, you're going to make about a hundred million dollars. It might be time to set up the business he, account. It's time to get that. <laughs> oh, but I, like, I'm always amused at how, um, I, I don't want to say unprepared. I don't want this to be so negative, but like just... They're, the players are so immersed in their world, right, where they don't have to handle something like, you know, opening a can of tuna or something that that we learn at an early age. And my, one of my favorite versions of that in, is um, I went down to Tampa um, when Steven Stamkos got drafted, and he or somebody in the team was telling, like, he just, he, he, he had um, realized he had no way to email, no way to communicate, so he went to buy a laptop and didn't know how to get it was like ra- randomly walking around this giant busy street in Tampa like the busiest street you know almost you know lost just trying to buy a laptop and it was this you know he's like it just took an entire day and you know, like, well, I, just, I, I, love I heard a story about Jeff Skinner when he was in Carolina and I don't know if it was his parents or his roommate but he was just sticking his his checks in his drawer he didn't have <laughs> he didn't have direct deposit from the hurricanes and so somebody came to his house and found, you know, whatever it would be for his first year, $500,000 worth of ch- uncashed no checks. No way. Yeah. He was just living, <laughs> off the, living off the per diem or whatever. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. And the best agents now, you know, have people that guide sure. these guys through life skills. But uh, you're right. You have to remember there, you know, a lot of them are plucked out of their homes and off the junior at 16 or 17 and, and then off to the NHL a couple of years later and they... They haven't learned some of the basic. Heck, I haven't learned some of the basic life skills, so I can't even imagine them. 
Oh, man. So, like, here we are, five seconds in. We're swapping stories. Like, there's so there's a million of these in the hockey world. And, mm-hmm. and it, you're right. It, it, is, it, it is people are guarded. They don't want it out. Or they'll tell you the story, and they'll say, this is not for publication. Like, this this right. will never hear the latest. So, you know, the even better stories are those. Right. So what was your strategy in, A, convincing people to let you share these? Because, like you said, this wasn't, like, 30 years ago I did this. This was, mm-hmm. hey, you know, I hung up on Taylor Hall. How how was um how was that process, and then how did you settle on the the, the stories you ended up telling? Well, I didn't have a strategy, first of all, Craig. <laughs> I had none. <laughs> I, as a good author, I sat down and had no strategy whatsoever, except that I was just going to try. And yeah. uh, with each individual, it worked a different way. I mean, I think in... The, the idea for the book came from sitting on that panel for 20 years and we've had so many different guest players or coaches or whatever. And yeah. as you know, they often tell you the best stories not on the air, right? right? When they're when we're sitting around having pizza or whatever. And so I guess for several years now in the back of my head, I was thinking, you know, if and, and not just because they're too salacious for TV necessarily, no. but they don't fit the format of TV, right? And I think that's where Spit and Chicklets has been so successful because it fits the format of a podcast and having a guy on and talking for 45 minutes, but I hadn't really seen it done in a book. So, you know, for the most part, I think guys were generally comfortable. Uh, you know, a lot of the guys I worked with, the Jamie McLennans and Dave Poulins and Jeff O'Neill's and such, you know, they've, they've told the story. So that was no problem with the current players. I was, I had no idea what I was going to get. I, I really didn't. And, uh, I was just hoping for the best, frankly. And if some, if I got somebody on the phone and they told me a story that wasn't great, then I would just kind of go, as I'm sure you've done in the countless mm-hmm. interviews, uh, yeah, do you got anything else? <laughs> 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 so, uh, and, but I, I, I guess, uh, you know, there's a level of trust where most of the people in the book I had some sort of re- degree of relationship with before. Sure. Andre Kopitar, uh, starred in one of one of the goofy TSN features we did, where we did a parody of The Hangover, and so I've oh known I've known Anze that for was a, yeah I've known him for a long time, so he trusted me. And Sid, though I don't pretend to be close to, I guess I've interviewed enough times that he trusted me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've told the story a couple of times, but Sid actually, it's the the bigger thing was getting a hold of these guys during a playoff run. As, as you know, getting a guy for an hour, oh. two hours on the phone is a real challenge. Um, and in Sid's case, he would send me voice memos, which uh, I, every couple of weeks, a voice memo would pop up on my phone. And I don't know where Sid was on a plane or in a car or waiting for a flight somewhere. And he'd say, hey, James, I thought of another one for you. And and he these would come up once in a while. And in the end, I had about 10 great Sid stories. So um, I was really happy that, you know, they trusted me. Obviously, the book, there w- there's going to be no TMZ there's some really interesting things in the book that I think people have never heard of. Like you say, McDavid hanging up on Taylor Hall when he calls to congratulate him. But, <laughs> but there's nothing, you know, there's no real, you know, strip joint lap dance kind of stories in there. And I, I wanted everybody to be happy with the book. I wanted them to read their chapter and not go, oh, my gosh, I've gotten myself in trouble. Right. There right. was a couple of people that called back and said, hey, do you mind taking out? Sure. This line or whatever, and I. But I think that happened really like maybe twice in the entire book. Yeah, that's always the line you walk, right? With something like this, they're helping you out on some mm-hmm. level, 
Uh, I mean, they are without a doubt. Um, so you don't want, but you also are like, I, like this can't be some sterilized version of reality either. So, like, well, that, I would I, tell I, people I, that I, yeah. I would say, yeah. like, if in in certain cases, uh, I would say, look, if if I can't tell the story right, then we're just not going to put that story in or whatever, right? But you know, it wasn't. I this was a different. You know, I broke. I guess some of the rules that I would have been taught in journalism school. I think in a book like this, you you have to if you have to break. I'm not going to just take the story and print it a hundred percent without without saying, "Hey, Sid, are you all right if I use this one?" You know that kind of thing. Because I think that that's part of. Uh, I wanted it to be. I wanted the book to be. If Craig and I were sitting in a bar with this particular player or coach or whatever. And he's telling us stories. So I want it to be their stories. And so they have to be comfortable with it. Right. And and I don't think that, I mean, maybe you know, Bob Woodward would disagree with this or whatever. I don't think that breaks down any walls of journal. Like, I don't think you're no. not doing your job. Part of it is maintaining um, sources trust. And so w- when you do say, hey, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to publication here or I've written it. I, I want to make sure you feel good about this. Like, that's... That's maintaining a trust of the source, so you can then relay that those stories to fans. Like I think that's I, I agree. That's okay, I agree. And uh, you know, there would be my more awkward conversations were ones I, I wanted. Look, at, there's there's a fish story element to hockey stories, as we know. Sure. Uh, and as I write in the book, if there's a little bit of embellishment in here, that's fine because <laughs> I, I want there to be. Um, but I wanted the stories to be real, and because because there's some. And, you know, there were a couple of people I interviewed where I, they told me stories and then I, I did fact check as much as I possibly could and I would find out they weren't true or that didn't happen or that wasn't that game. And so the more awkward conversations would be calling back and saying, hey, so you know that story, that actually didn't happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it only yeah. happened a couple of times, but, uh, you know, sometimes people just got dates wrong or opponents wrong or whatever, but... Uh, uh, I remember in one particular chapter, and I won't say who it was. I, there was three or four major factual errors where I, I had to I had to call back and say, uh, "Yeah, that just didn't quite happen that way." Um, and, and sometimes it, it it's not even malicious, right? Like I, I ran oh, into not that where, where it's like, you know, tell your best Joel Quinville story, and they're like, "Oh yeah, it was this day." And three or four people tell this incredible story that kind of is the same, but. Right. You know, the memories third period was play, the first period. You know, yeah. yeah, memories play. And there's some of these, you know, again, a lot of the stories were recent, but some of them are 20, 25 years old. So, uh, heck, if if I was telling you a story from, not that anybody would want to hear my own stories from 25 years ago, I'm sure I'd get facts wrong. So, yeah, that, that or was make yourself look better. I would at least. I oh, would, Everything would be like 10 times. Oh, yeah. 100%. Um, I, I laugh because I and first of all I'm glad to see it's doing well. Like I've seen you know you, you tweeted out you're like hey if it's sold out on Amazon go to Indigo. I, 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 that's I just as a hockey writer and lover of the sport I love to see the enthusiasm behind it. But I, I laugh because you were saying earlier before we hit the record button that's led to some some issues with you because you want to give copies to people that helped you. Well, you know this, but for for the listeners who don't know the publishing industry, when you sign a contract for a book, well, you know one of the deals is you'll get. 50 copies or 25 copies, or I think in my case, it was a hundred copies. I knew, I knew that I wanted to send everybody who took, taken the time to cooperate with me for the book. I was going to send them a copy of the book. And by the way, it's really weird signing an autographed copy of a book to say Wayne Gretzky or, or Sidney Crosby, because <laughs> it's just like, why are you signing your autograph and sending oh it to Wayne gosh. Gretzky? 
yeah, when he's going to use it as a coaster. But anyway, um, so I I was sending out copies galore when I received my shipment, and HarperCollins was good enough to send me 100 copies, and they were gone in a heartbeat because I interviewed so many people for the book. And then your friends start coming around, and everybody wants a free copy, and suddenly I had, I had no copies. So HarperCollins were kind enough to send me another batch of like 25, and then they were gone. And then this, this weekend, I had to go home uh, just to drop off gifts for in-laws and parents and stuff for Christmas. And I had no copies of my book left. And so I had to go out and buy my own book, which is the most embarrassing thing ever. <laughs> so two things happen. First, I go to a chapters uh, that has the book and I buy like three copies of the book. And I'm trying to, I'm wearing my mask, thank goodness. But the guy behind the counter recognizes me. And I'm sitting there with three copies of my own book. And he goes, isn't this you? Isn't? And I just go, yeah, please just just take the visa. Take the visa. <laughs> and get out of here. Yeah. Right. yeah, your name's on the visa too, by the right. way. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, so I do that. And then we need, okay, my wife says, okay, I need a couple more for Cousin Ernie or whatever. Yeah. So now I got to try and get three more. And uh, sorry, this sounds like a braggadocious. I'm not trying to be, but you're right. Just happened to be that a few of the stores around me were sold out. And so I go to a Costco, uh, my neighborhood Costco, because I heard they were there, but I couldn't find any there. And as I was, so I'm literally perusing through the piles of books at Costco, there's, and I can't find my book. And at the exact time, there's this couple, and they're kind of looking for this book, and there's an employee across the aisle, and they go, do you have James Duffy's book, Beauties? And I'm standing right there, like... And it was the most awkward, embarrassing thing ever. Because what am I supposed to say? Hi, by the way, that's me. Uh, <laughs> and I, I just here. bought the last 10 copies. I'm right Sorry. here in the Costco, <laughs> also looking for my book. And I just, I ran out of the store so quickly because oh. I, I just turned and ran because I was so embarrassed. Um, I don't know. It was just, it's the strangest thing ever. Uh, so uh, if anybody has any books I can buy off them, that would be awesome. <laughs> Yeah, the the secondary market. I should tell I also, people yeah. as the one shameless plug: you can buy the books online, and uh, at a lot of the chapters, just didn't happen to have them at the chapters in Costco in my neighborhood. Oh, that's great. Um, anything left on the cutting room floor that you were sad you weren't able to get in? No, uh, not yes and no. Uh, definitely a few, but in in the, the thing that made me the happiest is that. I did not leave anybody out who I talked to. So the 57 stories in this book are the, uh, there's probably 65 people I talked to or whatever, because sometimes there's two people in a chapter. Um, there is not, there are stories that I left out from particular people. Um, you know, Matt Nickel, the trainer, uh, one of my favorite chapters is about Ray Emery and uh, not about Ray's death, but about Ray's comeback, which I think was really sort of, uh, Dan Robson wrote a great piece about Ray, but, um, and touched on it, but a story just about his comeback, which to me is one of the most remarkable comebacks in hockey history. And Maddie Nickel tells that story, the trainer who helped him come back. But Matt had told me a great story about Eddie Belfour and orange juice and how when Matt was the trainer with the Leafs, Eddie Belfour was obsessed with orange juice and this certain, <laughs> I think it was Tropicana, uh, with like Tropicana no pulp or whatever. Right. And he had to have this supply at all times. And Matt was in a constant panic that there would not be enough orange juice. And, it, and Matt tells this great story about a playoff game where he had to run out in the middle of the playoff game to, to buy Tropicana to, to, to please Eddie Belfour. And, and I had to leave that out because I told the Ray Emery story. But besides that, all, all, of, the, uh, 
all of the stories are in there. Um, before I forget, one more uh, embarrassing book relay story. So one of the guys, speaking of signing autographs, so Connor McDavid happens to uh, live five minutes from me. And okay. um, so I wrote Jeff, his agent, and just said, you know, I'll, I'll get a copy to Connor. Uh, I'll just drop it off in his mailbox or whatever. And so I, I, I go to his house and there's nobody home. And I just leave it on sort of leaning up against a wall on a kind of uncovered porch. Mm -hmm. And because I wasn't going to ring the doorbell and bug Connor McDavid anyway. Hey, it's James. Here's your book. Uh, <laughs> so then I go home and I'm, you know, watching SportsCenter and I realize that Connor McDavid is in Arizona, which I should have known, but I didn't right. know. Right. And I'm like, oh, okay. So, so I text Jeff, his agent said, is Connor's girlfriend at the house? And he's going, no, she's in, uh, she's in Edmonton still. So, and then I look outside and it's pouring rain and I've realized I've, I've left this book outside. This is the next day now. And there's nobody living at Connor McDavid's house and his book is just getting destroyed in the rain. <laughs> sitting on it. And so McDavid's probably home. I don't know if he's back in Aurora, if he went straight to Edmonton or whatever, but uh, somewhere like outside Connor McDavid's house is this wiltering copy of beauties being destroyed in the, in the rain and the pelting snow for the last week. And I don't have the courage to go back and, you know, sheepishly walk up his steps and take it away. Well, I was going to say that would be the great follow-up where you go to retrieve it and get busted stealing things from Connor <laughs> right. McDavid's house. Right. One of those doorbell cameras alerts yeah. him that I'm back. One of the jerks stealing a package from the front door. Oh, uh, my yeah. gosh. I gotta, like, I, I'm going to say these are such good stories. I, I don't want to, like, you know, spoil the reader's surprise too much mm -hmm. here. The one that gave me... Like, like I was reading it and literally getting sweaty palms was Drager accidentally breaking the John Michael Lyles trade. Like I was, <laughs> that's my nightmare. Like that is my, right. like I'm placing my trust, like, I'm, you know, Brian Burke is giving me the trust. I, I, I worry about that all the time that something's going to happen where right. I, I'm going to like betray a source, um, <laughs> not on purpose. Like I, I, I have nightmares. About I that. think for, for guys like Dregs and yourself and the Bobby Max of the world, they, they, that would be your nightmare. I, that's why I try to avoid breaking stories at all costs. But uh, <laughs> for your listeners, I don't mind saying that one. Like I, I did want in the book, I wanted a big wide spectrum of hockey. I just did not want this to be hockey stories and uh, not just funny stories from the dressing room. There's a ton of those, but um, I wanted there to be referees. So there's referee stories and agents and parents and coaches. And, and, and I wanted there to be, some broadcaster stories. And so I had Driggs and Bob's is more of a hockey story, but um, the story you're talking about Driggs at, at the draft one year, um, Berkey uh, told him in confidence, they were getting John Michael Lyles and, but he couldn't, they hadn't notified the player or anyone. So he had to hold on to it for an hour, which happens a lot in this business with insiders uh, again, with your sources and trust with your sources. So Driggs agreed to wait. Um, this is in the hours before the draft and Drake's typed a draft email uh, in his folder. And as he finished typing the draft, he, he was running up the stairs to go talk to Bob and sort of tripped and the phone went out and fell across the room and Drake's just picked up the phone and the phone was fine and kept on going with his life and checked the phone 15 minutes later and realized that when he had dropped the phone, it had sent the email and TSN hockey had re, you know, sent it out and tweeted it and it was suddenly everywhere. Uh, and the panic 
you know, that second of panic when you realize you have broken a, a source's trust. Uh, Drake's tells it much better than I'm telling it right now. And having to con- having to walk across the floor and face Berkey a couple of hours. Of all later. people, too. Like Berkey's, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's a chance there's a scene yeah. on the draft floor. Like he's, he's there's a right hook. Right. And he actually Berkey was 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 pretty good about it in the end, I think. So uh, Drake's got off the hook there. But I, I, I feel your pain on those. Uh it's 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 the worst. I have since I don't break a lot of stories as a as a host. Uh, for me, it's um, posting videos by mistake or something on Twitter. And this happened to me last week, where I guess I have not used the Twitter story function yet, um, where you can post a story. But somehow I pocket I pocket tweet storied a video of myself golfing in my basement. And if it wasn't for Ray Ferraro, who had to instantly uh, email me and chirp me. And, and or text me and say, you know, why are you posting this video? And thankfully, I, you know, there's not much salacious on my phone because I'm basically do golf videos, but it's basically me and my sweatpants in the basement, like hitting golf balls. And it could have been much worse. So I'm very <laughs> paranoid of tweeting or Instagramming something uh, completely oh by gosh. mistake. Um, how often do you check how, how well you're, I love the, the James Duthie, Brian Burke rivalry. Do you check how well your book is doing against his often? In the, uh, the seller list? Uh, I'd be lying if I say I didn't check it. Uh, the, the, the bestseller list comes out every week. So he, at Berkey is very funny. He, the first week, I guess, when the books were out, uh, and they were, I think his was second and mine was fourth or something. He didn't, he just sent me a text with a screenshot of the, of the, of the things and so then mine passed him for a couple of weeks and i was sending him screenshots back and forth and yeah we're very juvenile on that yes of course i, I can only imagine um uh, roberto luango does the forward and that's another like it's funny like the relationships of the people you connect together that's another guy I, I connect with you for some reason and so i wasn't surprised to see that like going back to the olympics and and you know the the bits you guys would do what when did you when did you start to form that relationship with Roberto that kind of you know right that, uh, I think that showed his side that we didn't know existed like his mm-hmm. his public persona completely shifted at some point I'm not sure that there's been anybody in hockey from from that perspective where whose people you know people's general opinion of the guy outside of hockey has changed more over yes. time than his where he's now one of the most beloved figures in hockey and I would say most of that is complete First of all, all of that's from him. Most of it's from his Twitter account. I'd like to take a small credit for some of the bits he did for TSN as well. Um, so I didn't know him at all. And I kind of had the same perception I think a lot of people did, that he was sort of quiet, a little bit aloof maybe. And I was asked maybe a decade ago by my boss to do a serious feature about backup goaltenders. They wanted a serious look at what it's like to be a guy who only plays 10 or 12 games a year and we chose Jamie McLennan because I think you know he'd been thinking about getting into broadcasting his career was almost over so he was an easy guy to approach and in the two weeks or so between getting assigned the story and going to do it I decided to uh, change it and make it into something completely different which was a a complete kind of joke of a story about how a backup um, I thought to myself backups they must hate the starter because they that, they have the job that guy wants. And so right. I came up with this idea of, 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 of Luongo being a real jerk who used McLennan as a slave. And McLennan was quietly seething inside and wanted to get rid of Luongo and ends up 
uh, driving over him with a Zamboni in a dream sequence. It's, it's just really stupid television. But uh, that was the first time I met him. We showed up in Florida, and the first scene we had to film was the uh, getting run over by a Zamboni. And so it was the end of practice, and Luongo was coming off. And as he's coming off the ice, I had to stop him and say, Hey, Roberto, it's James. I know Noodles talked to you about this. Uh, we're going to film the scene now where uh, we, we run over you with the Zamboni. And he's like, yeah, no problem. And he was so good. And right away when we started filming this bit, he started coming up with ideas. And I think the relationship just went from there. And then he got traded to Vancouver and he would text me and say, hey, why don't we do a, why don't we do a, a story on this? Like when, and the one I think was uh, the greatest in my, not the greatest story, but when the Luongo Schneider thing was happening in Vancouver, there was a lot of tension there, right? About who should be the guy. And he texts me in the middle of all this and says, why don't we do a fun piece about us battling to be number one and having this incredible rivalry. And oh, so we went, went and shot this uh, complete silliness of them all, uh, you know, uh, going back and forth on each other. I think you can find it on YouTube. And, and for him, and I think that was a great piece because everyone thought, oh, these guys must hate each other battling for number one. And instead they were close friends who sort of gave a big wink to the entire controversy of the situation. And I think that just shows, you know, Luongo's incredible sense of humor. So the bits that we've done with him are are some of my favorite bits that I've done at TSN. And he's one of the, I'm not really friends with a lot of NHL players, frankly. Uh, but he's he's one guy who I've gotten to know really well because of those things. And uh, I just think he is exactly what you think he, like, if, if you love his persona as Strombone or whatever, that's exactly what he's like. He's just a really good guy with a great sense of humor. And so I'm, I'm really happy that everybody loves him the way I loved him when, uh, when we did that first story. You know, it's, it, he's always been interesting to me because it, it makes me wonder how many players in the past, I, I think, in, in, and I would take responsibility, like there's a feeling within the media of maybe getting players to open up or really conveying how they are. But I'm sitting there going, had it not been for social media or these other outlets, we would still think of Roberto Luongo as maybe this aloof, you know, guy that, that that's how he was painted early on in his career. And I'm sitting there going, like, how off have we been on as a, you know, media through the years on players, right? Without having this outlet for them. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny in a way that I think that more players haven't used it. And, you know, maybe Roberto's a unique circumstance because he has such a great sense of humor. But I, I know even from writing this book, there are other guys that have great senses of humor and are still maybe reluctant to use it. There's a lot of players that, uh, you know, post videos of working out and such. But uh, right. Right. I, I think that that's probably one place where guys could be guys out there that probably could use the medium more. Um, I don't know that there's anyone that has been as successful of showing another side of himself uh, as Roberto has. Well, no, I mean, in the bottom line is he's a unique person. Like he's, he's legitimately funny. Like mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. like, he's not just, you know, chirping or whatever. Like he's like, he is a, like a comic mind. Like he does, well, stuff he, but it's, it's, he's so self-deprecating. Right. And that's, yeah, right. I think, that's what I think people love in an age when, you know, there's not a lot of, I think probably in hockey more than anywhere else, you get it. But in a lot of other sports, there's not a lot of self-deprecating superstar athletes. And yeah. I think that's what the, that's where the charm lies uh, more than anything else. Right. Yeah. 
my favorite moment with Roberto Luongo was he, he covering 2010 Olympics beats the Americans. So as an American, I didn't love that portion of it. But um, flying out of Vancouver, I happened to be at a gate next to him and his family. And I love that the, there was a photo in your book of, of him and his family celebrating the gold together. But to see this big group and just to see the joy that moment and that and to kind of see it behind the scenes, right? Like the, you, you see... You see, maybe right. what you wouldn't otherwise with this with this guy who had been kind of maligned, and people wondered if he could win the big game, and there was all these right. questions about him. And I'm like, and now he gets to have this. I love right. that. And it's the vulnerability, and that's what again I was really happy with that he shared in that story. There's there's two Roberto um, chapters in the book. The forward, which is just about that time he had some. Uh, uh, stomach issues, let's say, in that uh, overtime game against Anaheim, which he goes into vivid detail about in a hilarious way. But I, I did want a serious story from him. And so one of the last chapters is about that 2010 um, gold medal win for Canada. And, you know, he talked about the moment after, I think it was after Broder had a particularly bad game, maybe the third game. And uh, they were riding on the bus and Babcock's sent him a text and said, come to the front of the bus when everybody else gets off. And he kind of figured what that was about and waited till everyone got off the bus and went to Babcock and Babcock said, you're the guy from here on in. And instead of, you know, the cocky, okay, this is my time. He, he felt sick to his stomach and said he wanted to throw up. And for an athlete to be vulnerable like that and tell us all that, you know, he wasn't super confident. He was terrified. And, uh, and terrified really for the rest of the tournament until they won the gold medal. I think that's, that's an endearing quality. And I wish, I wish more players would, would talk that way, talk about their insecurities. Um, because that's how I would be. If like in Canada, the biggest, everybody in the world is watching and now you have to replace a hall of fame. Like the upside there is so small. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like mm-hmm. nothing. Like at that time, Canada wasn't. At that point, you maybe wasn't even the favorite. And it's like, oh, okay, now it's on you, Roberto. Best of luck. I'd be terrified too. I think they all have that self doubt, and I think that's what drives people. It drives all of us, right? The fear of a fear of failure is what drives all of us to work hard. But I don't think many athletes admit it, right? Mm. They just they just say, oh yeah, no, I knew, you know, I knew we were going to win, blah blah blah, and he didn't. And and was was terrified right till the end until they won that gold medal. I mean, there's confidence within the game, right? But it was the moments right. before the game and such where you you are filled with all that self doubt you've had. And I love when an athlete reveals that. Yeah, that's great. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24 seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. So one thing, James, in, in doing some research kind of beyond the book and in, in, in about you and watching some videos is I came across um, some clips from you and your daughter Gracie going to Ethiopia that I just didn't know existed and I'm like that's what an incredible story that is what inspired that trip Uh, I I think Craig a few years ago I guess six or seven years ago uh, I was 
looking for a way to give back. You know, I we've donated to charities like everything else, but I felt like I hadn't done anything of any sort of significance. And secondly, and more selfishly, I wanted my kids to do something. Uh, you know, they're typical kids living out, you know, in a nice life in a nice community outside of Toronto and hadn't really experienced anything of what the world was really like. And Children Believe, which is the organization, approached me and, uh, you know, I'd seen some videos before those commercials that are sort of sappy and, and make you feel so sad. And I didn't want to do those. And I made it clear to them, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want, uh, you know, to be holding the, the sick child with the flies around. Uh, I, I appreciate the causes there, but I, I just didn't want to be part of that. I wanted to do something positive. And they said, okay, that's fine. Let's go do some trips and show you what we've done right? Show you the schools we've built and the water supplies and wells we've built. And I took each one of my three kids uh, when they were in grade 10. Mm. um, My last one, sorry, waited until grade 11, but uh, to three different places where Children Believe does work. So my son and I went to Paraguay and my eldest daughter and I went to Nicaragua and my youngest daughter and I went to Ethiopia last uh, January, just before the pandemic hit. And uh, we actually sponsor uh, two kids, uh, w- one in Paraguay, which my son and I met, and uh, a little girl in Ethiopia. So that was that was the coolest part is, you know, people through all these various organizations, uh, you can sponsor a child. But to be able to meet that child, to go to the town and uh, go to her, her house and and meet her and, you know, see the help that you're getting is, was, was a really cool experience. So we spent a week in Ethiopia um, doing that, uh, shooting various videos. And I can honestly say one of the great experiences of my life, because to, you know, to be able to do that, um, incredibly difficult, by the way, like to, to see that level of poverty and you imagine a grade 10 or 11, 16 year old who's lived a a perfect life in Canada, getting to see poverty at levels you wouldn't even fathom to understand. I mean, this family where we sponsored the little girl, it was the single mom with five kids in a house that essentially was a shack, maybe nine feet by nine feet, mud floor, uh, nothing else, um, a couple of goats, their only income. So it just, it's just, it was just, and yet they're happy. Like ha- these kids, we went to the schools and such, they're happy. And you wonder how, you know, in our world and the way we live, how, how do you find happiness there? Because they don't know, right? They don't know what they don't have. And they're just happy to get up and have a meal every day. And so anyway, just I I really did see legitimate changes in my kids. uh, Because of this, I think that they understood, you know, where Canada was in the world and how lucky they are to have what they have in this country. And so it was incredibly worthwhile. And uh, um, yeah, it was trips of a lifetime, really. It's interesting, because like you said, we've seen the commercials, you know, my family and I have have sponsored kids but i think when you're just sending the check or even i'm doing even less work it's on autopilot um you don't it feels like it's it's almost not even real you know like you have a name and a kid or whatever but it seems like it's in another right and and you know what it's still okay though right you're still doing a great thing um but i I understand what you mean 100 percent uh yeah and that was like i said that was the the to see you know what our money had done you know, in this case, I think uh, just before we left, we threw in some extra money and bought them um, two goats and three chickens. Okay, which, you know, again, how do you wrap your head around that in North America? But for them, two goats and three chickens. Okay, suddenly they're 
you know, they're selling eggs at the market and the goats are reproducing and you can turn two goats into 10 goats and sell those goats. And, and you can suddenly create a livelihood for a woman who didn't have a livelihood. And, and now the kids can go to school and, and so on and so forth. So it was, uh, yeah, it was really, really cool to see. It's, it's interesting because I had Bob McKenzie on and we were talking, you know, about raising kids in this time and, and you know, or even just because we both had kind of similar blue collar upbringings mm-hmm. and, and now, you know, he's raising his his boys as, you know, Bob McKenzie, right? And that right. comes with its own set of challenges. Like what other things have you done to try to like, okay, I, you know, this isn't normal the way we live, right? For the most part. I think, you know what, I, I live a really sort of quiet life. Um, yeah. I'm a pretty boring guy and they don't, I live in Aurora, north of Toronto. There's there's no, I don't think, real massive wow factor uh, with their friends or anything about what I do or anything like that. <laughs> right. uh, I think, you know, in my early years, it was fun. You know, when my son was, I can remember, uh, you know, him being, I don't know, eight or seven or eight and taking him to the World Juniors in Ottawa when Tavares and Piquet and all those guys were on the team. And I think they signed a, a program for him and... Uh, I can remember him like he just he had no concept that this wasn't what every was like he was in the dressing room or whatever and hey that that, that was kind of fun and I'm like son like you have no idea uh, right uh, <laughs> um, but but I don't think beyond that I think they just uh, and I think that's one thing I'm proud of that both uh, my wife and I have done a good job that they're not they don't. I don't know. They don't think, uh, I don't think they think anything besides I have a few books out and, uh, my, my family's not a sports obsessed family. TSN is not on a lot in our house unless I'm watching it in the basement. So, um, I think they're, they're pretty normal. And besides the fact they they love going to the world juniors at Christmas time and they think that's pretty cool. Um, I don't think there's, uh, they don't sit around. There's, there's never anyone go, Hey, my dad's on TSN. I don't think this has ever, ever happened before because I don't think they really care. I think they're more embarrassed by me than anything else half the time. Yeah, that's probably that's that sounds about right. Yeah. It's, I, the, your, your family and your kids are always the least impressed with anything. Oh, I'm not even sure my kids know what I do, to be honest. They're like, what do you you're in your office all day and what? Well, exactly. My wife, um, I, she is the least sports fan. Like you could not. I've married less of a sports fan than my yeah. wife. I, I tell these stories often, but uh, there was a time a few years ago, you know, when I'm away at the cup final and, and uh, she, she, I called her and said, I had, was my son's graduation. He was graduating from grade eight. And so we didn't know if I would make it home. And I called her after the Blackhawks had come back and beaten the Bruins. And I said, honey, I'm going to make it. Uh, I'm going to be home. It's over. And she goes, ah, I'm pretty sure there's one more round, isn't there? I said, no, no, honey, there's, there's, there's no more rounds. And she goes, no, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I read there's one more round. I'm like, honey, Jonathan Taves is 20 feet away from me with the Stanley Cup. There are no more rounds. And she goes, are you sure? I'm like, yes, I will be home tomorrow. So, oh my gosh. so uh, I think that's what, uh, um, like I said, there's not a lot of sports talk that goes on in the house. We're, one of my favorite moments, I remember when the Kings were beating the Devils in the Stanley Cup final, and it had been a long road for everybody and in the clinching game the kings go up three or four goals early Mm -hmm. and pierre lebron booked a flight back home in the middle of the game and we were so mad at him for potentially jinxing us of you know getting home to see our like we're like pierre he's like no they got this i've never been more mad at pierre in my life 
Right. That was the uh, that was the major penalty or whatever by the Devils, right? And they scored four goals on the power play or oh, something like that. Gosh, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. was a jinx city. And we also, I'll say, that same Stanley Cup final, Bob McKenzie and I broke every rule about no cheering in the press box because <laughs> um, I, I think that probably the dirty little secret for a lot of guys who cover the playoffs is that people think that we're vested in, you know, who were you cheering for? Well, for most, for the most part, we cheer for whoever wins game one to win games two, three, and four and get it over with so we can go home to our families, right? If you've been on the road for a long time, that's the reality for a lot of people. Um, the fan in me would love to see game seven every year, but the the dad in me wants to get the hell home. And so that particular year, remember when Boston had the lead very late in that game and it looked like we were headed back to Chicago for a game seven and that meant three more days on the road. And then the Hawks scored two goals in like a minute and won the game. And Bob and I were high-fiving so hard in the press box, breaking every rule possible because we were just, we were ready to go home. Uh, yeah, I mean, I know. And I say this in, with a caveat, we have the best jobs in the world always. 100%. And I, and I, know, and I, like, I there's no complaining. I no. love it. It's just that constant tug of war, right? It's just, it's the reality of, of life, especially when you have when you have kids and, uh, and you're away from them for a long time. You're right. Like, I, I love everything about what we do, but certain sometimes you just want to get home. Yeah. Where'd you grow up? So I was an RCMP kid. So uh, in my younger years, I was everywhere. My dad kept getting transferred. I was born in Ottawa, moved to Edmonton as a as a child. Uh, we lived next to the family of Cliff Coral, who uh, most of your listeners will probably be too young to remember, but was a, a Black Hawk who played in the Stan Makita era. And that mm-hmm. was where my sort of love for hockey came from, because when I was four, five, six, seven, my, my dad would always talk about living next to the Corals. So that was my first favorite player. And the Blackhawks were my first favorite team. Uh, then we moved to Halifax. Then we moved to Victoria. And then finally back to Ottawa, where I spent most of my years in high school and university and such. So I uh, moved around sort of all Canadian boy as a kid. And uh, uh, But I, you know, I, Ottawa is my hometown for sure. Do you, how do you think kind of the bouncing around impacted you and kind of is a, your personality? I was young, uh, probably too young for it to impact too much on me, uh, except I think I was a bit of a, a loner. If I was to pr- try and get deep and psychological with you, um, I have two older sisters who are well older than me. And I think moving around in those ages before you're 10, 11, 12 years old, I spent a lot of time probably on my own. And I think I had a wild uh, imagination. My mom used to say that, you know, she'd send me to my room and it was no punishment because she'd come back up 10 minutes later and I'd be, I don't know, playing with Lego or whatever and inventing some you know, talking, I think I was doing play by play on whatever the heck I was talking about at like five years old. And so I think it probably, probably spurned maybe creativity in me. I think I wasn't a real smart kid, but maybe um, I had a lot of weird stuff going on in my head, which probably ended up being the roots of those TSN pieces we've seen. Um, and and maybe my love of storytelling that I've gotten later on in life. So I, I suppose you could probably draw something to that, that uh, uh, I was alone a lot as a kid. Um, yeah. But I don't, besides that, uh, I had a pretty normal childhood. What drew you to Carleton and studying journalism? Well, it's funny. I, I was going to go, My I had grand illusions of being a professional football player. Um, oh, and, right. and they were they were complete illusions. Uh, I got recruited by McGill. And I was going to go and play cornerback at McGill and take phys ed. And uh, that was my plan in life. I was going to be a gym teacher and play five years of football at McGill. 
And I think at the last second, I, I sort of had this, I don't know, I had this moment where I realized I was, uh, you know, barely 5'10 and 160 mm-hmm. pounds with average speed and talent, and that the 49ers probably weren't looking for that, um, <laughs> nor, nor, the, nor the CFL. And uh, so I just kind of had a last minute change of heart and said, what, you know, what could I do? I want to do something in sports. I'm not good enough to be an athlete what would be the next best thing and uh and you know applied to uh, some anything with sports attached to it sports marketing sports uh um well, sports administration i think at laurentian and journalism at carlton and uh got into journalism so i said let's try that instead was it all did you want to be forward facing like camera the whole time or was that something that kind of evolved probably probably was enough of uh yeah i mean I, I wanted to be, I just knew I wanted to go to the games for free, essentially. <laughs> that was that, first and yeah. foremost. Uh, so uh, I can't remember. I remember that there was a, 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 my second year prof at Carleton or third year, one of my first TV stories, I did a, a feature on one of the running backs at Carleton, a guy named Mark Brown. And um, I remember the, the teacher wrote on my uh, evaluation said you were you're pretty good at that this you should think about a career in tv and that you know that was the first time i ever thought oh somebody besides you know me thinks maybe i could do this for a living and it it's incredible how you know a teacher can impact you that way uh because that was just one line on a thing and that was the first time i started thinking okay maybe i'll try to do television and maybe i'll try to be a sportscaster and kind of went from there did you have like your a big break? Like, was there a moment where it you, you were able to kind of change lanes to get where you had to get? Well, that's a really complicated story, and uh, <laughs> okay, I'll uh, I'll I'll tell you it quickly. Um, I basically became a news reporter um, because there weren't jobs in sports when I got out of Carleton. I was hired by CJOH, the local station in Ottawa. At, uh, at in my last year of school, I was really lucky. So I worked away in news trying to get a break in sports, but TSN was still in its infancy and there weren't any other sports networks and there just weren't jobs. Every station had two guys who'd been there forever. I did a couple of sports casts. Carolyn Waldo was one of the sports casters there and she went on maternity leave a couple of times, the former synchronized swimmer. And so I did some sports casts, but uh, Brian Smith, uh, the late Brian Smith was the main sportscaster in Ottawa. And I don't know if you'd, re- you'd know this story, even Craig, uh, but he uh, was uh, a schizophrenic, uh, shot him in the head and killed Brian uh, walking out of mm-hmm. our station uh, a day. I happened to be on vacation in Halifax. And uh, obviously the most horrific, uh, incomprehensible story that one could imagine, particularly in a town like Ottawa, right, which is just a safe quiet, wonderful city, and at a place like CJOH, uh, for this to happen to to Brian, it made no sense. So hmm. I had been uh, I'd been out partying with some friends in Halifax and slept on somebody's couch, and they woke me up the next day and said, you need to turn on the TV. And my boss called me uh, a few minutes later and said, uh, at this time, Brian had, was in a coma, and said, we need you to fly back and do the sports tonight at 6 o'clock because Bill, uh, the other sportscaster, uh, was too shaken up um, Mm. to do it. And so I took a flight back and got in a cab and learned on the news that Brian had passed away and and did the six o'clock sports that night. And the hardest thing 
I'll ever have to do in my career. And I suppose in some weird way made the rest of my career easier because um, that was just beyond anything I could comprehend to sort of make my debut on the six o'clock sports in that fashion. Right. And did that sports cast and got through it and then sat in the stairwell and bawled for about 45 minutes because Brian wasn't, um, you know, I'd be exaggerating to say we were close friends, but he was a good friend. And I spent a lot of time hanging around in the back listening to Brian and Billy tell stories uh, because they were just great, great guys. And that's when they offered me the position to go into sports full time and and replace Brian. And uh, so that was, needless to say, the worst possible way you could ever get the break you wanted your entire life. my goodness. And uh, I did it for a year and a half. And it was among the best year and a half of my life because Billy and I were best friends and Carolyn was great and uh, had a great time, but never felt right uh, mm. doing it because it just, again, it's all I wanted to do and then for it to happen that way. So I ended up leaving. I took a news mm-hmm. job in Vancouver uh, just because I, I just needed to leave. And, uh, and TSN ended up calling me six months after I took the job in Vancouver. So sorry to be long-winded on that story. No, that's a little more no complicated clue. than your typical, uh, your typical breaks in the business. What do you I, what do you think you learned from Brian and maybe it's from what was watching him or or just from those stories in the office? Well, I think both those guys and you know it's it's funny Billy uh, Billy I think was probably among the most proudest when I made it to TSN because he sort of uh, he never had a son and and, and uh, sort of adopted me that way and taught me the ways when I got into sports and uh, Billy passed away of a heart attack uh, um, in during my first year at TSN. I think he really going back to replacing Brian, uh, he really, you know, he was the guy who did the 1130 and was really comfortable doing it. And I think the pressure of being the six o'clock guy, uh, got to him and, uh, and took a toll on him. But both those guys, I think what they taught me first of all was the value of a story because the local newscast back then, unfortunately sports has died at so many local newscasts, but the local newscast, particularly at, at CTV in Ottawa, was about telling stories. They would do a high school athlete of the week and a senior of the week. And so they taught me that that that, that high school athlete of the week or that 90-year-old cross-country skier we're doing the profile on was just as important as doing the profile on, you know, Alexi Yashin playing for the Ottawa Senators uh, those days. And I think they really uh, burnt that into me, that every story... Uh, you just don't just think about, you know, doing the elite athletes or whatever, that every story you can tell is just as important. And the stories you can tell about people that aren't known are just as valuable. Um, so that was, that was the lesson I think that uh, Brian and Bill taught me. The other thing I remember Bill used to always say to me when I got on TSN, I was prone to doing too much of the yuck yucks, uh, hosting sports center. And I can remember Billy calling me and saying, uh, and it, his, his example was always if, if Muhammad Ali, who was still alive at the time, you know, dies in a plane crash, you need to go on there and people need to take you seriously. And so you need to balance uh, the attempts at humor with uh, credibility. And I, that always sort of stuck with me. And I think from then on, you know, if I was doing 10 intros on a show, I'd try to make, you know, one kind of funny and mm-hmm. eight or nine <laughs> more more serious and not... Uh, uh, balance. So those two guys taught me a, a heck of a lot is a, a long-winded way of saying that. Yeah. Um, w- why do you think you kind of, the pressure, 
I'm sure you're dealing with it in different ways, but why do you think you've succeeded to, to kind of block that out and, and do what you're able to do? I think that uh, my years in news are part of the reason that I, I do think spending eight years as a news reporter, you do realize uh, sports place in the world. And I think something like COVID has also taught us all that. If we look at, I don't want to use the word perspective because I hate when we use that, uh, you know, when something happens. So that puts everything in perspective, but it is an escape and it is, you know, something that people do to get away from everything else in their everyday lives. That doesn't mean we don't take it seriously and treat it seriously. And we, and we should, because a lot of people care about it and they're big money industries, but rem, rem, always to remember that it's not the end of the world. And I think that somehow that was probably ingrained in me with, with my years and news and that, okay, if I screw up really badly in, on TV, uh, which I've done numerous times that, um, yeah, it sucks. And you're going to be mad at yourself for a couple of days and you might get uh, people laughing at you on Twitter, but in the end, does it really, you know, it's not that big of a deal. And I, I think that that probably helped me along the way. Um, always, you know, again, treat it with respect and treat the right. fans with respect, but always remember that you're talking about a hockey game or something. And, uh, right. I, I think, again, this is a lot of self observation that I probably haven't done in my life, but I think that that's probably helped me, uh, be relaxed and, uh, be myself on TV. Yeah. I, I, I think that's great perspective. And I think, um, your attraction to storytellers, like just to bring this all full circle, like this, this to storytelling and storytellers. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that comes across right in this book. Like, you, like you said, you're not just, you're telling Connor McDavid and Sidney Crosby, but you're telling anybody who has a good story that can connect people. Um, there's value that people like that. And I think that comes across in the book. Well, th- thank you for saying that. And I think that's, you know, I think there's something special and I don't think I'm, I'm going to be preaching to the converted here with you because it's what you do. <laughs> yeah. But there is something about hockey and stories, I think yes. more than other sports. And I, I don't know what it is about hockey, uh, whether it's just the nature of the game, the toughness of the players uh, that lends itself to great stories more than other sports. I, I really feel that way. And as I said, when we started the interview, I honestly think you could take every player in the NHL um, and each one of them probably has, you know, a handful of great stories, if you can get it out of them, right? That they, that it just, uh, it's something about the nature of the player and the road trips and everything else that it just, it lends itself to this more than other sports. And uh, so it's, uh, it's a true pleasure to be able to tell a few of them. Awesome. Well, the book, again, is Beauties, Hockey's Greatest Untold Stories. It's awesome. I'm glad to see it successful, even if it means it's made your life a little harder in sharing copies with those who've helped you. But James, congratulations, and thanks a lot for doing this. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, if uh, let Connor McDavid know that I'm sorry about the wilted, uh, rain-covered, snow-covered, frozen <laughs> copy of his book that is sitting on his doorstep. If you, if you need me to send my copy over to Connor, just let yeah, me know. Yeah, please, please do. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> thanks, James. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. I want to thank James Duthie for joining the podcast. It was just an incredible stories. That was fun to talk to James. I would encourage you to check out his book, Beauties, Hockey's Greatest Untold Stories. Probably makes a great gift. Um, and hopefully it's not sold out. I mean, hopefully for him it's sold out in bookstores. But for your, for your sake, I hope you're able to find it. Or if not, you can try to find the, the stranded Connor McDavid version that's, that's somewhere in a, in a doorstep. So thanks again to James for joining the podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. Uh, a couple things before we wrap up. Um, Pat Brisson of CAA joined Scott Burnside and Pierre Lebrun this week on Two Man Advantage. Pat is great, uh, great storyteller, represents guys like Sidney Crosby, Jonathan Taves, uh, Matt Barzell, Patrick Kane. I mean, just a, a long list of superstars. So Pat is always an interesting conversation. And while you're at it, if you enjoy it, Pat was on the full 60, oh man, about a year ago and was, was great talking about how he became an agent. So you want to go through the archives to check that out i would encourage that as well and the other thing if you haven't read mike russo's story on mark parish at the athletic um i would encourage you to check it out it, it talks about how he finally got help for his uh, struggle with alcoholism and mark joined mike russo on straight from the source uh and that's mike's podcast if you're not a wild fan or you haven't listened to it check that out great story to read and great companion podcast with Mike and Mark. So um, definitely check that out. Last thing, if you have a second, you want to give me a holiday gift, the best thing you can do would be go to Apple Podcasts, review this podcast, leave a review. Um, it helps me out and, and I would greatly appreciate it. So do that if you have a second. Otherwise, um, thanks a lot for listening. I hope you're able to enjoy the last couple of weeks of 2020. Uh, enjoy the holiday season. Thank you so much for everything. Take care.